Welcome to the White Wolf Den. It's been a while, as usual. I'm really bad at uh, staying consistent, which is uh, it's a sign of failure. <laughs> if, you, if you're not consistent, you will not succeed. It's something I've uh, figured out. Uh, today is March 20th, 2022. It's a Sunday. Uh, big show today. Big show. Uh, I wanted to start off... Uh, today I went to the memoriam for a friend of mine. His name is uh, Johnny Hall. He was uh, an, my agent uh, when I was trying NFL things. And uh, I met Johnny Hall when I was in high school. And uh, it went down that when my grandma died, she didn't do her will correctly and we had to probate. And there was a probate referee, and my mom was bragging about me playing football and how she thought I was very good. And the probate referee said he was also an NFL scout. And then he knew a guy named Johnny Hall, and we all collaborated. He hooked me up with Johnny, and I remember talking to him on the phone. And uh, Johnny said, look, dude, you can come out and... Show me what you got. If you suck, well, I can. there's nothing I can do for you. So that's on you, man. Come give her a shot. So I went out, and he took me to the track, and we did a little workout, and he saw some potential, and uh, we became friends. And he, told, he gave me advice. He told me what to do because he had a ton of family that was in, the, uh, in D1. They were at uh, LSU. Uh, some of them ended up in the NFL as well. So this guy... I felt like he knew what he was talking about. He also, he played at USC. Uh, he was a cornerback. He was actually in the Hall of Fame as an NFL player. Yeah, so he was a big, he was big time. I, I, and, uh, he, I felt I could trust him, you know? <clears throat> so I ended up going to Memphis. And, and from then on, you know, I tried out some things here and there. You know, I took his advice and I tried to get his strong and fast as I could, you know, and he was right about everything. I didn't, I didn't do as good as some of his nephews. So, but we tried, he ended up becoming a friend of mine. Uh, and, and, you know, forever, like we would talk on the phone and he, he lived in the Hollywood Hills <clears throat> off Laurel Canyon, I believe one of those streets. And uh, whenever he was in town, because he would he has his, he had his own business. And funny enough, like he played in the NFL, I, I think for like ten years, and nothing happened, like no injuries. And then he got out of the NFL and he got in a car accident, and broke his neck. That's how he got hurt. But and it you know affected him. But he he lived to a ripe old age. Uh, it still sucks that he left us. You know. He'd say, Bobby, I'm in town. Let's go get lunch. And we'd go to Mel's Diner or we'd go to another place called La Petite Four or Roscoe's Chicken and Waffles or Saddle Ranch, Jerry's. These are all some of his like favorite places, you know, and we'd go eat there and just shoot the shit. And when I first went to Memphis and my friend from Mississippi took me hunting, and that was weird because I was from California and never hunted. My mom is like a super animal lover. and uh, But it's like you don't go into someone's house where they live and, and bring your 
your virtue signaling or whatever to their place, you know, you kind of go see what it's all about and learn. And so I went on a hunting trip in Mississippi with my buddy. He's from Hamilton, Mississippi. The only reason that place is basically a thriving town is because they have a big chemical plant there. And that chemical plant ended up having to pay a settlement to all of the citizens because it polluted the water or something. <laughs> and a bunch of people got sick there. <clears throat> My friend uh, Dave, really good friend of mine, love him to death. He uh, he took me on a hunting trip. There were like 60, 70, I don't know, there could have been 80 people there. Family, friends, tons of people. <clears throat> I was telling Johnny about this because he grew up in Louisiana and I was just telling him about my, what I was learning about the South, you know? So I went on this trip and I said, uh, there's my friend's grandpa who had, he had like three teeth. He goes, Hey, California, come here. He goes, you see that guy over there? Go ask him why he has nine toes. You know, the first place my my brain went to was like he was inbred. <laughs> I'm sorry. But that was, I mean, I'm talking about the first instant. I was like, oh, come on, dude. But then I was like, there's got to be more to the story. So, and I'm kind of boisterous. I'm not afraid to say dumb shit out loud. I mean, and the dude told me. So I, if he got mad, I would say, hey. Grand Diddy asked me to tell you to ask you this. He told me to ask you. I went over as my buddy Scott's brother. I don't remember his name because I have Alzheimer's. So he, I went over to Scott's brother and I said, "Hey, hey, dude, why do you got nine toes?" <laughs> and anybody within earshot was on the ground, fucking dying. They were laughing, wheezing. Then people who didn't really hear said, what the hell's going on? And he goes, oh, he asked so-and-so about his nine toes. And the dude was just standing there. with his. He hung his head down. He kind of chuckled. And he goes, well, I was leaning my gun on my foot. Or I had my, my rifle on my foot. And I leaned on it to relax. And it went off. And it blew off my second toe. And I... I was more shocked than like the laughter around me. I was like, Oh, I was like, that's terrible. <laughs> like, and then I think grand Diddy was like, yeah, and stupid, you know, some shit like that. And I told Johnny that when we were, we were at the Tamashanter actually, which is an Atwater village, little restaurant by my house. He, he lost it. He goes, he was like, that dumbass was resting his gun on his foot and blew his damn toe off. What an idiot. You know, and he was dying. And every time I saw him, he would say, man, tell me about them nine toes. Tell me about the nine toe guy again. Please just tell me. But he would do it. And I would tell him every now and then. And uh, he, uh, we went to, I went to his memorial today and I told that story. And uh, everybody who knew him chuckled. I told the story of uh, his car that he had. He had a, he loved fast cars. He had a Porsche, and his wife made him get rid of his Porsche 
because it was too fast and she was worried about him. So he got this Mercedes AMG, like six some point something liter turbocharged. I just remember when I, he said he wanted us, he said, let's wa let's wax my car. And I was like, yeah, let's do it. You know? And I got some rags and we were, I was like, where's the Porsche? She goes, my wife made me get rid of this. The, or my wife made me get rid of the Porsche for this. And I was like, started looking at it and I was like, this is an AMG. I said, this is S-Class. This is a, this is a six point something liters turbocharged. I said, V8. I said, your, your Porsche was a V6, right? It was a 911 probably. I think it was a top of the line uh, Porsche. And he goes, yeah, yeah. I was like, this Mercedes is faster than your Porsche. And he said, he looked, he was just looking uh, like just in the distance. And he goes, yeah, but she doesn't know that. And then, uh, you know, we started chuckling. That was the kind of guy he was. <laughs> he was just the coolest dude. And uh, I'm sorry to see him go. That was my Sunday. Uh, Saturday, uh, the Swedish Nightingales played at a place in Tarzana called The Last Call. It used to be Petey's Place, I think. I don't think I'd ever been to Petey's Place, but they have a really nice stage there. Uh, a lady named Terry, who she, she, I think she owns it. I mean, she runs that place. She has a place called the Universal Bar and Grill. She has a place that used to be the Parlor Room, which is now called the North End, which we played at as well. My bass player was friends with uh, Black Sabbath, Sabbath cover band. And it was uh, Sabbath's birthday, the lead singer. And uh, we, they said they needed, they want another band to play. So we played. We uh, after they did, and it's the first Sabbath band where I actually saw them cover both Ozzy Osbourne Sabbath and Dio Sabbath. They actually opened with Mob Rules, which took me by surprise. I was just ready for straight up Ozzy Sabbath, and everybody in the in the place was digging it. And we played, and then we went on after we did our sound check. They have. A huge PA system and they have a sound guy on an iPad and and we uh and I got to to go for the first time I actually ran my my neural quad cortex which is an amp modeler through the house I did bring a a small speaker to have a little stage stuff for me and everything sounded pretty good uh, people say like we're too loud and I'm like well I mean what do you tell the sound guy Tell us how to turn everything down. But I mean, I don't know what the hell, <laughs> what the hell is they talking about? We just, we play, we rock, and it's like, it's always just so damn loud. But it's rock and roll. You know, that's the the old man and me talking. Uh, Swedish Nightingales, I said last little podcast, I believe I laid down. I talked about, uh, like it was a state of a union. And we, but I talked about recording and my house in my garage in December uh, with that gentleman from Columbia, Mono. He's now mixing our stuff. Because we all have jobs, uh, it's taking a while, you know? And I still need to lay down background vocals. I still need to bring in my background singers that are badass. And, you know, everybody's busy again. We're all working. And it's just such, it's such a, a shanda. <laughs> it's such a shame. It's like that we I have to like go through this rigmarole to get these things done, you know, like that I can't that everybody's so busy. It's busy to coordinate like and if it's not it's them, it's me, too, because I'm busy it, because I'm working my regular job of like commercials and TV uh, shows, art department. 
stuff that takes like 12 to 14 to 16 hours and i still got to come home and do errands because my wife is she's having a baby so i got to do more things uh less time every day is just, there's something filling in another half hour of my life and it's, it's it is what it is you know but the recordings are coming incredible are sounding incredible for at least the quality that for what we did and i'm I'm I, I painted my room like I got the <clears throat> the drywall done and painted and I got a lot of stuff in. I, I wanna get a new desk or at least bring in the L desk that I have. I have to build a couple shelves because this Felipe has two F and drum sets here taking up a whole bunch of space that is in my way. But I gotta get stuff I, I don't mind having drum sets here, you know, but I just want them organized i gotta hang my guitars on the wall i gotta put soundproofing you know the stuff i gotta do so if you're listening right now you're probably hearing a bit of a room echo because it's just flat walls here you know my other room had had stuff kind of everywhere so it was a little dead more dead i have uh, the carpet in here that's kind of helping a little bit and i don't mind a bit of a room tone it makes it sound more real you know so what something i like to talk about i don't know if i talked about this last time and i don't care it's been on my mind also was once we get these nine songs done we are trying to make decisions on how we're going to approach releasing it for maximum listening or maximum benefit to us there's a huge challenge in the music business and and for general artistry that's been going on almost since the dawn of time. You know, and when I went to Europe and I went to see the Renaissance paintings, I I something hit me a little bit. <clears throat> Number 1, the Renaissance paintings are majority religious paintings that were commissioned by the church a lot of those the most famous artists of all time were making a living scraping by painting the painting stuff for the church and a lot of this stuff went down in history as the greatest stuff you've ever seen and a lot of these guys died broke as hell and sick and dying you know they died penniless and now you have these places making a killing off of this art. Like some entire cities rely on the tourism to see this art. This is the platform, and it's the same for music. There's about a uh, there's about a million guys out there, bands, musicians, singers, guitar players, violin players, piano players, composers, who are dying to get their stuff out there. And we are at an age where people can have a what I would call state-of-the-art recording studio in their house and do top-quality, professional-quality material. And now the market is just flooded with content. And by the market, I mean the, the platforms. Because you once you have a music, you've got to have a place to play it. Whether you recorded the music... And you put it on Spotify or Apple, and you know, 
I almost don't want to say their names because I'm giving them like like free advertisement. And dude, you get a million plays on there. I think you get like 19 grand. And the CEO's got $4 billion, man. Ne- probably never played a chord in his life. <laughs> I'm probably wrong. He's probably like a acoustic player or something. He probably plays a little acoustic, like a little Green Day or something. But the money in art is not in the art. The money in art is in the platform. It also hit me big time in the movie The French Dispatch when I when I saw Wes Anderson and I spoiler alert so if you haven't seen it I'm going to talk about a, some something in there that hit me there's a scene the movie is based off of a it, there's a f- bunch of storylines that connect it's basically The French Dispatch is a newspaper and there's a bunch of amazing very eclectic journalists who want to get their stories printed and they and one of the stories is about an artist in jail who was in there for a crime of aggr- like passion and aggression it's like he will he felt he was defending somebody and he beat somebody to death he's in prison he makes a painting in prison that's based off of the sexy prison guard he's in love with and some rich gang member sees the art and says we're going to get rich off of this. And I was like, that's, that's what happens. He's, he said, this guy's in prison for life for killing somebody. And somebody else says, I'm going to take this art. I'm going to sell it outside for We're going to create like a fake company. We're going to, and then we're going to buy a building. And then we're going to, we're going to put this, we're going to do an art show and then we're going to have an auction and then we're going to sell it. And then we're all going to be rich. And that's how the that's how art works. If and also if you're a musician and you have a band, and you want to, pl- what do you want to do? You want to play. You want to play live. Not everybody does, but so many people are dying to play for an audience. So the platform for a live band is the venue, and that can be of any size, from a coffee house to a a music venue like club like the viper room or the whiskey and now we're getting bigger all the way up to the palladium and then all the way up to uh formerly staple center crypto.com arena when you play at these places most likely you are under a label not not the whiskey but the, the uh, but let's talk about the big dogs. If you're going to go play at the Staples Center, which is the biggest dream for everybody, you you pretty much have to be under a label. A label, you have to have some backing. And the label, nine times out of ten, is taking advantage of you. No offense to the labels out there, but you are. Because you're taking a risk. So I understand you are taking a risk that this, because this art might fail. <laughs> you know? So... You need to get your, you know, you're investing. You got to get yours, right? You have, you want to play the Palladium. You got to have some backing. It, when you play a venue and they sell whatever amount of tickets they sell, let's say it's 10,000 for the Palladium. I'd have to double check. The Palladium gets 50% of that. The venue. The label gets 49%, and then the artist gets 1%. 
of that show. <clears throat> and then they get their merch. And unless you have a shit deal with, with your label, which there was a time when it's like you got 100% of your merchandise, your t-shirts and your jackets and your underwear and your socks and your beer koozies. And then the labels decided we're not making enough money. We need to get a piece of the merch too. And that's a big deal. And there's they, they make these deals to this day if you're not smart or you don't stand up for yourself. And that's the world. The world is the artist gets 1%. Lisa Left Eye Lopez. I just saw TLC, you know, from TLC. She did an interview and the she was asked, like, why aren't you, aren't you rich? You know, this song sold, or this, it was a song, uh, sold, it's, it sold, or the, this album sold $60 million uh, around the world. And then she said, yeah. And of that album, the entire band gets 1%. So that's $6 million. They made a $3 million music video that they borrowed the money from the music label. So of the $6 million they got, they automatically were chopped in half because they had to pay the label back. After the $3 million, they got to split that up between their managers and their agents and booking people, there's like people they got to give their percentages to from that. And then whatever's left over, they give it the, the 30 whatever percent to Uncle Sam. And from $60 million, the, the whole band gets like uh, a little over a million dollars, a million and two, 1.2, 1.3 split three ways and that's the music business and that's a big band and people online will say well that's because they made a shit deal and it's true they were young they got the deal it looked great on paper and they're, they're, uh, a buddy of mine eric i don't want to say his last name unless i get permission he's an entertainment lawyer he is a lawyer who who basically represents like musicians to make sure they don't get screwed and if you're an artist and you have big dreams, then you should get one. To, you should, if you have any things offered to you, then you should say, yeah, I'm going to have my guy look over it. And if they say, yeah, no, that's not how this works. This is a one-time offer only. You get the hell out of there because they're screwing you. Because if they really want you, they'll wait a day. Because if they get you and they, and they, if they get you in there, if they get you and they lock you into their deal, then they're going to they're going to take everything. You know? And they might take your they might allow you to do your songs which they own because you didn't read your stupid thing, your contract, and then they'll shelve it. They'll say, "Uh, you know, the world's not ready for this." And then they'll just put it on the shelf and then you will not be able to play it. You'll not be able to promote it. And then it'll just die. And then you'll find out that you were competing with something that they loved more. And then you get, and then you're fucked. <clears throat> so <laughs> all this came out of me to saying, how am I going to approach this? Because it's like, what's my goal? It's like, you know, do uh, I would, my goal is I have some cool music and I want people to hear it. And I, if I just distribute it on the distribution sites, like there's CD Baby and then there's DistroKid and there's more. 
Those are the two that I'm very familiar with. CD Baby's $10 a song, and DistroKid is a fee of like 20 bucks for the, or it's even less, but I did the one that's 20, so I can do two bands because I have two names. I have two different projects. And you can do as many songs as you want a year with those two projects. So I thought that was the better deal. If I distribute all my songs with no backing and no advertisement, it's a, it, it doesn't get pushed. It doesn't get shoved into people's things. And there's a way that I guess you have to reach out to Spotify or to try to get on some playlist before you release the song. It's a, there's like these math codes. You have to know, like you have to do all this stuff in a specific order just to get a little bit of an edge to still not even get as much exposure as you'd want. So one thing I've noticed a trend in social media is like on Netflix or TikTok, if you make a bunch of short videos of your stuff and it's good, you'll get some following. And I, and I feel that that's the smartest way for someone to become an independent artist. And two examples of independent artists that I believe are successful and not maybe not a lot of people know them, but they have a following and they make money and they, it's almost as direct as you can. They're not beholden, if that's the word. I'm going to look it up because I don't want to sound like an idiot. Beholden. Definition. Yeah, beholden. Owing thanks or having a duty to someone in return for help or service. They do not have to be beholden to a label. They are in charge. The two artists I'm talking about are Devin Townsend. Uh, he sang in, for Steve Vai, and then he did uh, Strapping Young Lad, which is a super heavy metal project. And then he did a solo project, just the Devin Townsend solo project, which is multiple styles of different albums that shows his range. And he has a following because he's a super talented, incredible musician, guitar player, singer. And he nails it. He just maintains his level of talent, and he gets better all the time. The other artist that's interesting as an independent artist that's just comes to these are the ones that come to my head is a band called The Handsome Young Devil. It's it's a band from Brooklyn. They're from well, they're from Brooklyn, but I guess they're by way of Boston, Massachusetts. It mixes genres of like rock and funk, jazz. It's like there's almost like this gypsy element to it. I, and these were both recommended to me by my friend Nick when we last hung out uh, down by Oceanside. He told me about these bands. I forgot about Devin Townsend. I knew Strapping Young Lad, but I didn't know that was Devin Townsend. I just heard about them because the drummer was in Death Clock. But these two bands have huge followings. They promote themselves and they make money. And they don't have to answer to anybody. And they don't have anybody going in. Here's another thing. Like when you deal with a label, like you go in and record and then they start tweaking your stuff. They take out the stuff that like, like when Nirvana was recording, Nirvana was always saying, I want to leave these noise. I want to leave this feedback. This makes this more interesting. And when they were producing for pop stuff or when they blew up, they were like, no. Oh, they'd say, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. And then they'd go in and they'd edit all the shit out that made the song 
more unique. And there, if you go on YouTube and you look up, there are different mixes of Metallica or Metallica, different mixes of uh, Nirvana masters. Like um, the one that comes to mind is in utero. Uh, the original was Steve Albini or Albini from 1993. And that's the one that I'm most familiar with. Well, there's a 2013 remaster that was done by Scott Litt that includes different solos because there's different takes and different, there's like feedback and noise and disgusting stuff that, that Kurt loved. And I think that that was more Kurt. And, you know, there's a lot of people actually that, what's funny is like the first version you hear of of music seems to resonate with with people more <laughs> you know it's it, and so some people hear it and they're like ooh like i don't like it because it's not what they're used to it's not what they sat and listened to that cd over and over and over again or the tape or however they got it the first time but uh, and a part of me is like oh that solo doesn't it's not the same that i feel that I remember that I'm used to. And it's like unsettling. So then I try to take myself out of that. And I try to say, let me pretend I'm listening to it for the first time. And I really, it's like a, it's something that I tried to, to learn how to do. I pretend this is the first time I've listened to something. And then I said, Oh, you know, I get it now. This, this is, this is better. Cause maybe this is what, Kurt would have wanted, you know? So when you work with a label, they will go in with their producers and clean your stuff up. And that's good sometimes, but it's awful sometimes. It's awful with like punk and and things like grunge, which grunge had uh, had like punk elements to it. It was a lot more raw and... There were bands that were very produced and clean, you know, like Alice in Chains was very, they, you know, clean in the studio and they did have some elements, but you know, not like the old, the, the old punk stuff, which was like, they rebelled, they rebelled against anything produced. They played with like one mic in the room and just let loose. <laughs> Maybe the guy, the singer was on a mic. There was like a room mic. Nothing was mixed. It was just, I mean here and there and everybody knew that what they were trying to accomplish there and when you went and saw them live it was another story they were they really brought the noise so that's this podcast you know it was supposed to be i was supposed to get into the oscars because the oscars is next week and i always wait too long and i wanted to really get into it uh but I, I did this procrastination thing. I actually talked about stuff that was going on right now instead. So that's what this podcast is about today. Uh, I think I'm just going to double duty it and just uh, do the podcast, the uh, Oscars one. For, uh, for the next episode will be the gambling lines of the Oscars. And some a bit of some movie reviews. Not I'm gonna do it in a way that I don't give much away, except for like, <clears throat> you know, what's e like easy stuff. Like you look up what the plot of the movie is. It's not gonna give any spoilers away. But I'm gonna say why 
I hated the movies or loved the movies. I why things that were snubbed should have been in, why things that are in should just get the hell out. Uh, I'm going to give gambling lines. And so I'm not saying to bet, but I'm, I'm going to say what Vegas thinks that you should bet if you were a betting person. So, and then I will tell you what I think the Oscars are actually going to pick because they seem, they seem to gear a certain way or they there's, you know, there are certain woke trends going on that they seem to lean towards. Not all the time. Uh, so that's what the next podcast is going to be about. So if you got a Oscars party that's going to be happening, then you listen to this. Just so you know, since I started this, which is like three, maybe four, maybe even five years ago, I have not lost one pool not one uh one of those oscars checklists uh i've won every year so it, it, it you know it's easy to say when the it was just me and my wife doing it during covid but i smoked her she had no chance <laughs> and i even screwed up because i actually at the last minute went against my predictions because i thought you know almost treated it like the like a quote unquote underdog and then I missed like three, but I still I still whooped that trick. So tune in next time in the next couple days. Uh, you will be getting your uh, Oscars picks, and I'm pretty good. So I'll see you next time on the White Wolf Den. Follow White Wolf Music with no H W I T E White Wolf Music uh, on Instagram. Follow the Swedish Nightingales on Instagram. That's K-N-I-G-H-T. It's all about spelling shit wrong. That's what makes shit cool. Uh, follow the Swedish Nightingales. Follow the White Wolf's Den. Again, no H. W-I-T-E. White Wolf's Den. On Instagram. That's where I'm going to be doing stuff. Because that's my, my comfort zone. Because I'm old. Yeah, Instagram's for old people. So, see you next time.